Yeah, so you were saying about the fanboys. I, I'm loving that conversation. That's why I started recording. So please don't stop. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Like, I was just remarking about the fact that military history seems to be uh, dominated by this discourse, which takes on itself a little bit like a fanboyish streak to it. It's like, no, the Romans were the best. They kind of... Uh, they had a rampage across the Greek world. They whipped the Carthaginians. You know, they 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 spanked the Celts. You know, there wasn't <laughs> one nation that they didn't spank left and right. You know, so the conversation tends to take uh, the element of that. You know, pre you know back. I mean, in, in the old history nerd days, but now nowadays, yeah. especially a lot of young people are bringing into this history either through like video games mm. or. I don't know, video games. <laughs> yeah, so. video games and video games. The thing is, I really see it positively. I think video games have filled a gap, which is quite necessary, because if you just look at history in its academic format, there isn't a lot of people who are going to get interested by it. I think... Yeah, it's dry and boring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there is a great void which has to be filled out by the more narrative uh, media like movies, like maybe even books, novels, literature. Yeah, at least get people interested, right? I mean, it's like a, it's like a starter. Oh, absolutely. I think storytelling is an essential part in history. In fact, the earliest histories that we have are those myths. They are those narratives that have been uh, passed on to us either through the written record or orally. Uh, and I, uh, I, yeah, like the Homer, the like the Homer, absolutely. and like all the epic poems. Yeah. Yes, I think they had that role in that they 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 lent uh, this storytelling aspect to people. Tell, tell, tell they sort of uh, describe like who they are, where they come from, what are they made of, how did they become what they are today, and so forth. And I think today's history, which has taken something of a different turn since the days of uh, Theodore Mommsen, this was back in the 1800s, of course, when, when history and indeed the social sciences as a whole became more and more scientific, they, were, they underwent something of a more scientific treatment. I think the storytelling aspect was somehow lost in translation. Instead, we... Uh, we co-opted more and more for a microbiological attitude towards history. And I think this has sort of alienated the masses from uh, their own uh, narratives. They, they, it probably has sort of imparted this, this dry impression of history. Oh, no, I have to hit the books. Oh, no, this is so boring and so and forth. And I think you know? sometimes that's done intentionally. I mean, like, it's, it almost seems like a lot of the acad people in the mm. academia, um, a lot of the historians, they, it's almost like they intentionally write in such a dry uh, style mm. that only... They make sure only they're the ones who are keeper of that knowledge or are interested in that topic, yeah. and and everyone else just like you get totally put off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I completely agree. I th I think uh, somewhere along the line, this this is somehow also done a little bit 
by design, but I also think it's because now we are at a point in history where we are trying to sift away myth and fiction from the facts. So I think there's also a great utility behind this more scientific approach as well, because after all, we should be striving more and more towards the truth and the facts of what actually has happened in history, because history itself is If you look at it philosophically, history is a problem. History presents a lot of problems because, first of all, the history that has passed on to us, how much of it is true? Uh, There is this old expression about history that it's all lies, it's damned lies, and it's become history. (laughs) It's like, I think of it sometimes, it's like mystery solving because... You know, there's so many yeah. side of the story. It's like that. Absolutely. I don't know if you watched seen that movie, uh, um, Akira Kurosawa movie, Rashomon. It's uh, oh, it's yeah. about. Yeah, that's it's one like of my a, favorite movies of all time, by the way. Yeah, that's a great movie because you really Real show classic. you. It, you can get so many different perspectives on the same event, right? That that's history. You kind of have to shift through all these Absolutely. different narratives. It is partly perception. It is partly per- perspective. But I, but I can't really think of a film that has been more ripped off than Rashomon because you start to see these little rehashes in Hollywood, uh, most famously in Pulp Fiction. You know, uh, I think uh, yeah, Tarantino yes. took a lot of cues from from uh, Rashomon. Uh, in any yeah. case. Uh, in regards to the Battle of Karai, this is actually one of the instances in history where we see something of an exception to the rule of the victors writing the history. This is something a little bit of a reverse osmosis affair here because uh, from what we can gather, the history of this battle and the history surrounding it, every indication points to it being Mesopotamian in origin and later on passing on to the hands of, of Greek scholars and the like, like Plutarch and later on to Cassius Dio and so forth. In fact, you So one second, is this something like you would like to include in the main talk or would you, would you be touched on, on the main talk uh, about this? About the sources and, and, you know, the historical sources. Absolutely. I think uh, discussing the nature of the sources is a key element in understanding how this story has passed on to us. I think the cause... cause Let's do this, Amir. Um, How about um, I just start introducing you and then um, I'm going to ask you uh, to basically introduce yourself basically how you, who you are, um, how you got interested in the subject, um, you know, like, uh, and then, then we can transition into talking about the main topic of the battle. How, what do you think? I think it's a good, good idea. Let's go with that. Okay. Let, sure let, let's thing. do this. All right. So one, give me, give me a, give me a minute to gather my, my key <laughs> sure here. Thing. One second. <laughs> Okay, it's February 10th, 2018. Welcome to another episode of Podcast Clash. Today we have a very special guest all the way from Sweden. Uh, uh, I'm not going to try to pronounce your name. How how would I say your name? Uh, Amina Askari, but you're actually doing really fine. I I really must say, I've... uh, 
I'm, I'm going to go with Amir. It's very, very <laughs> so, good. Uh, so Amir, Amir here came to us by, um, uh, uh, by high, it was highly recommended by our previous uh, Clash podcast guest, uh, Nadim Ahmad, who did an excellent intro on the Sasanian yeah. Persian Empire and its rise. But during uh, Nadine's narrative, he mentioned a very important battle, and that is the Battle of Karhai between the Roman and the Parthian Persian mm-hmm. forces. Now, this is a, such an important battle that I felt uh, it really deserved its own episode. And Amir here is all about Battle of Karhai. Wow. So I'm, I'm very glad that we have you here. To our podcast, Amir. Thank Walker. you very much indeed. It's all mutual. Uh, love to be here. Uh, uh, and also, big shout out to Nadim, who, who actually recommended me to be here. Cheers, buddy. Yeah, thank you, Nadim. Uh, before we start, uh, Amir, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are? How did you become interested in the subject? And just to, um, yeah, just to fill us sure in. Sure thing. Bit. Uh, I actually uh, studied this this particular episode in history for close to a decade. I've always been fascinated by the Parthian era. Uh, and I think it is one of those moments in history, one of those really decisive moments in, in history, uh, where we have a context, but we also have a major causality that follows it. Uh, because this is, after all, the starting point of a 700-year conflict between two major powers. This is likely uh, the longest conflict in all of human history, the longest continuous uh, conflict in uh, human history. And I think this battle, therefore, deserves its own spotlight, because... Not only is it born out of its own times, I keep hearing people saying, for instance, that it was an accident, it shouldn't have happened, but everything in the context pointed to this becoming an inevitable clash between civilizations. I think this otherwise overused term of a clash of civilizations uh, is actually very fitting here. I mean, in most other cases, it's a cliche, it's overused, it's like an adage, like this device, literary trope, whatever. But in this case, there is actually no description that fits this clash better than that. It's a clash between two not only diametrically opposed civilizations, but they also come from originally from the edges of the civilized world at that time, both Parthia proper and both Italy as in Rome, were at the peripheries of their own respective realms, which was the Hellenistic worlds and the Persian world. Now, I don't know where to really start with this, so maybe I should just... I mean, one of the reasons I really wanted to do this podcast is because I feel the Persians has always given the short thrift, uh, especially in... um, in the Western dominated narratives, right? I'm, I'm talking about Hollywood, sure. um, <laughs> <laughs> comic books. <laughs> so I'm talking about yeah. 300. <laughs> it's, uh, well, the thing is, I think it's also the symptom of 
what history has become today. I think uh, because of the loss of narrative with the public, I think because of the detachment of the wider masses to the historical narratives, we have come to precisely this where now Hollywood has to fill in the void, where now comic books have to fill in the void to tell us these stories again. And they are very problematic mediums. Cinema is almost inherently propagandistic. And comic books, well, it's it's a kind of medium that I consider to be quite lowbrow. So I think it was the uh, the detachment of people and literature. Um, if, if we, for instance, compare Gore Vidal's creation from 1982, I think, and if we compare it to Leo Tolstoy's uh, opus, War and Peace, uh, I think we see uh, with the wider masses as they became more and more literate. I think also modernity has sort of detached people from those old narratives where they don't simply... Uh, that's why I think uh, those video games that start proliferating in recent years mm-hmm. actually did a great service to get the young people to be interested in ancient oh, history. Oh, absolutely. Um, who, which uh, normally is presented in super dry and boring fashion in classrooms. I mean, let's face mm-hmm. it, we most of us don't really learn history in, in classrooms. We easier, easier like don't learn history at all or we... We learn it because we're interested in it and because we're history nerds. So we actually go out yeah. and seek out different sources. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Alternative. I values. think everything so, that the school actually does, I, th- I think it's repellent. I think it has done just about everything to make history as unappealing as possible. I completely agree that video games have absolutely filled in a much needed niche. In fact, this is also where I began, first of all, with Age of Empires 2, uh, as I was a big strategy gaming nerd back in the day. So I also found that there was a lore inside of the game. And I think anyone who has been been sort of immersed by the uh, interactive nature of video games has come to realize that, oh, but this, this is a really good way to teach history in a more interactive fashion. And what better way is it there to to actually put the player as the chief of state uh, as some kind of omnipotent figure or the likes of it uh, and give him a map you know i think i think a lot of young people actually learn history much more efficiently through video games but this is not oh definitely i mean let's let's uh without further ado let's uh get into the background of the Battle of Karhai, because you you have sent me an outline and which you pretty much went into extensive details mm-hmm. on this background, which I, I have a feeling a lot many people are aware of. So would you just take us to um, the, the the political, uh, geopolitical background that led oh, to the battle? absolutely. I, th- I think it's actually quite essential before we can get to the battle itself. Uh, I think it's it's really important to know that apart from the Battle of Karai being popularly known as one of the worst defeats in all of Roman history, uh, that people either understand the battle in, in either a tactical or in historical terms. And I think there's a marked difference between the two of them because 
we have to see, first of all, the events leading up to the Battle of the Karai through historical terms before we can look at the tactics and the overall strategy uh, that, that decided the outcome and set the aftermath and so forth. So in regards to the background, uh, we have to, first of all, consult a map on this. Otherwise, it can become really tricky. And I think we have to see this for what it really is. Two emerging powers in the Eastern Mediterranean region were vying for, su for supremacy in this region. Now, we have to ask ourselves, how did this come apart? I mean, how, how did this happen? And I think it's really important to understand that both the Romans and the Parthians, as I mentioned before, that they came from uh, their respective periphery of the so-called civilized world, and that they had their own ups and downs before they came to the situation where they were during the second and the first century BC. Now I'm going to be using BC as a reference because it's it's easier to remember. There are many calendars at play here. There is a there is actually a, an ongoing debate in terms of chronology and the like. But we'll be going with what is. Let's stick with BC. BC, I think, yeah. is easily understood uh, by most so people. So what we got going here is actually two empires. Now, they're different in their political order and the like. One is a senatorial republic, and the other is a feudal monarchy. They, they actually couldn't be any more different from each other in terms of nature and in terms of their, political, their, their inner political dynamics. But I think it's also important to understand that in spite of those differences, eventually they would become much more similar to each other as time, as, as time passes on. So I think it's important to understand that these two emerging powers were not only uh, filling the void of the post-Hellenistic collapse, as I like to call it, the, the collapse of the successor kingdoms following the breakdown of Alexander's empire, uh, but it was also the result of a much wider causality of lesser powers trying to fill in the void in more regional uh, places, as opposed to the uh, scale of empires and the like. So Yeah, because this was really a yeah. very rapidly changing world, right? First you have... Um, Alexander the Great destroyed a uh, yeah. long-ringing, the first Persian Empire, uh, conquered all the way up to the Indus Valley, and but shortly after his death, his uh, his, his newly built empires very soon collapsed into different factions. But at the same time, uh, Rome rose very quickly in the Western Mediterranean basin, and mm -hmm. then. And then it starts to push yeast, um, whereas, uh, you know, Parthia arise out of yeast and, and start pushing west to, to uh, reconquer a lot of the former mm -hmm. Persian lands that were uh, under the Greek domination. We have basically out of this, like, chaos, this, this oh, two emerging power that you're talking about is is about to shape the new world order, right? And they're, they're about to collide in this Absolutely. epic uh, battle. I think uh, you have described it quite succinctly that uh, we have a rise uh, of two very disparate powers from two different directions of the world. And as they grow bigger and bigger in size, 
they also start to sort of size each other up, but more on that a little bit later. Uh, in any case, the Parthians are a little bit up and down. Uh, they, they have a very erratic rise into power. Uh, they have uh, episodes where they they violently expand their borders, but then they're pushed back. Then that happens again. So there's a lot of push and pull with the Parthians as, as opposed to the Romans, who are more famous for grinding themselves to a bigger size, taking monstrous losses, but still soldiering on. I think... Uh, and, that, and, I, and I think this actually goes back into the uh, the debate between the fundamental differences between the senatorial republic and a feudal monarchy, because a senatorial republic is inherently, uh, uh, I shouldn't say democratic, but it divides power uh, across many more uh, participants. Like, for instance, the power is shared in the Senate. And this is very, very much the rule in the Republic of Rome. So if... Yeah, there seems to be uh, much more power sharing among the upper echelon of elite. Yeah. Uh, so so the whole superstructure on the whole is a lot more stable than when all the power is concentrated in the hands of, say, a king of kings. Exactly. Right? Uh, because if... One of the members of the Senate fails in a mission and the like. The losses are, are almost evenly distributed across the Senate in a kind of a way. One usually says that if you lose, it's spread evenly. But if the King of Kings loses, it's, it's a loss for everyone. It, 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 it just comes like, like a big blow. Uh, but the opposite also applies, that if you have someone in the Senate succeeding, then that success is kind of tiny. Uh, and it has to be sort of convert between uh, the other power brokers in the Senate. Whereas the interesting thing I find about uh, this period, though, leading up to the Battle of Carhai, is that world order in Rome is actually gradually breaking down. Yeah. The, <laughs> the, the old... Uh, senatorial stability is disappearing and giving rise to a uh, new military strongman, right? I mean, in a way, it's kind of moving towards a Persian model. Absolutely. Uh, and this is something that we're going to discuss a little bit later on as we discuss the collapse of the triumvirate and the, uh, and the entrance of the imperial Roman system. Uh, as the Romans begin to resemble uh, more and more an or Oriental monarchy as as time pro progresses, uh, right, right. So uh, let's fo for, focus on on Persia yeah, for now. Absolutely, on, on uh, I think it's important to un understand that the Parthians come on the ascendancy uh, during the reign of Mithridates the second. This is not to be confused with Mithridates the sixth of uh, of Pontus, also known as the Great. This is the one that really deserves the title of the great. And there's many reasons for this, because he had actually inherited an empire that was teetering to collapse uh, on both fronts, both on the Western and the Eastern front. Now, this is uh, in the mid-2nd century BC. So it's, it's a little bit before the events of the Battle of Karai, but still a very essential period to understand how things came up 
to where they are. Uh, and I think that one has to understand that when Mithridates II had uh, wrote, risen into power, his two predecessors before him, Phraates II and I think uh, Artabanus I, they had actually been slain in battle uh, by first the Sakas and then by invading Tocharians in the northeastern border of the empire. Uh, I think if, if we were to point this out in terms of modern geography, this would be uh, around northern Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, around that region. Uh, so two slain kings, and still this, this empire is still holding up, but it's teetering towards collapse. It needs a strong ruler to emerge. And during this entire time, other small kingdoms who were otherwise connected in this big uh, network of alliances that, that made up this framework of the Parthian Empire began to sense that there was a weakness. So, for instance, you have ex-Seleucid governors, like, for instance, Hispausinus in the kingdom of Karakana, which is located in, uh, in today's modern uh, Kuwait, uh, he begins to sense some weakness and, and he declares independence and actually is emboldened to attack Babylonia, where, where the capital region, where the summer capital of the Parthian Empire is located and does so successfully. So Mithridates has a really hefty task awaiting him. In, in fact, it's, it's, it's an enormous burden. The, the entire empire rests on his shoulders. But Here's what actually happens. At some point, we begin to see that the Parthian military slowly sheds away this old Hellenistic style of warfare. Previously, during the reign of Phraates II, we see this attempt to fuse together the Parthian cavalry together with uh, Seleucid-style phalanxes. And we see this, this coming to a really catastrophic end during the reign of Phraates II as he enlists Greek troops to fight the Sakas. And what actually happens in that, uh, in that battle is that the Greeks actually defect and side with the Sakas and Phraates II comes to a demise. So we have to sort of assume that there was some kind of military reform to uh, streamline the Parthian military machine into a far much more efficient force. And now we're talking logistically. Now we're talking about mobility, maneuverability, not so much tactics. This had to be a military force that could quickly deploy itself to the east, quickly deal with the nomadic uh, threat in a way that negates the nomadic way of warfare, but also afterwards be able to wheel around and be able to defeat the Hellenistic uh, style army, such as the one that uh, probably the kingdom of Karakana was, was fielding. So Mithridates by that time had managed to do the impossible. He had uh, not only destroyed the nomadic threat and restored these minor kingdoms uh, in the Western frontier uh, to this uh, uh, network of alliances, but the state of the empire itself was considered uh, safe enough that he could actually receive embassy from the Chinese and uh, begin commissioning what 
now would be known as the Great Silk Road. Uh, and this is actually where the Silk Road has its beginnings. Uh, not earlier, not later. This is where it begins. Yeah, yeah, like a lot of people today, when they think of Silk Road, they usually think, uh, oh, it goes from China to Rome. But um, in fact, during this time, the Silk Road terminus is actually Absolutely. Persia, right? It links the two great civilization of China and the Absolutely. ancient Europe. Uh, together. And I think this is kind of yes. important uh, to have into account here that the expansion of the Silk Road uh, later on into Antioch, which would have been the Roman terminus of the Silk Road and not Rome itself, uh, this was a later development. Uh, and we, we see this... Uh, the, that actually made uh, Palmyra important stopping point oh, on the Silk Road, absolutely. right? Because absolutely, it has to because the silk has to travel through the Persian territory, through the Great Syrian Desert, uh, stop in Palmyra for water, and then travel further east mm -hmm. to the Mediterranean coast, and and that's what made Palmyra so important later on. Absolutely, I think uh, there was sort of like a triad of cities or city-states rather that would immensely benefit from uh, this Silk Road trade. First being the uh, the Kingdom of Araba, which would have been the city of Hatra, uh, which was a client to the uh, Parthian Empire. Uh, then, of course, Palmyra. And then later on, uh, Petra, which would have been the Nabataean Kingdom. Uh, so... This great initiative could only take place once the Parthians had restored a sense of stability in the empire. The, uh, this was something of a golden age during the history of, of the Parthian empire, anyhow. And I think this is sort of important to understand because during this entire time, the Romans are not doing as well. I mean, they're, they're not doing as good during this entire time. They, they're suffering multiple civil wars. They have uh, the two servile wars and the social war of 91 BC. And then you have the two civil wars between Sulla and the Gaius Marius. And that one lasts for eight years. In fact, it actually continues for quite a fair bit. But during this... So for the most lay people of the English-speaking audience... This is a time of the great revolt by Spartacus. Exactly, exactly. And this is also where most people would know Crassus, this general of the Roman side on the Battle of Cari. Uh, this is where most of them know them, probably from a film like Spartacus and the like. But actually, uh, Crassus comes to prominence not during the uh, slave revolt of Spartacus, but actually during the civil war uh, between Sulla and Gaius Marius, which culminates in the Battle of the Colline Gate in 82 BC. And this is very important to have in mind because now, as we have spoken about the uh, fanboyish uh, approach to history taken upon by, by some people, there's this idea that Marcus Licinius Crassus was either not a competent general or the like, but if one reads the, this particular chapter uh, in Roman history, one would uh, actually come to the conclusion that Crassus had actually been crucial to save the Republic from the point that it had been in during the civil war between uh, Sulla and Gaius Marius. 
because he was actually leading a cavalry contingent at the Battle of the Kaline Gate, uh, without which Sola would have been, well, mildly put, screwed. Uh, so I think it's also partly about restoring uh, Marcus Licinius Crassus' role in history and what he actually has achieved, as opposed to him being reduced into some kind of a trope. Yeah, because he did suppress Spartacus' revolt, and he did help Sola come to power. And in fact, mm-hmm. it's during this civil war that um, what we talked about earlier, the senatorial dominance of the Roman politics is mm-hmm. gradually come to coming to an end, right? With with a military strongman. I mean Sola is a dictator. <laughs> he, he was literally yeah, he named is. a dictator. He he, yeah. he 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 absolutely is. I mean, in fact the the marching into Rome was, was unprecedented. We have we have to really think about it. It was completely unprecedented at that point. And it was something that would actually stain his reputation for the rest of his life, no matter what he actually did afterwards or before it. This act alone was going to haunt him for the rest of his career, essentially. Uh, So this is probably also a good point to introduce the outbreak of the first Mithridatic War in 89 BC, uh, and we have to take this into account that Mithridates II is, depending on chronology, some say he died two, two years uh, previously, but according to Gareth Sampson, who, who I'm really quoting here on a lot of this, uh, he actually thinks he uh, he passed away somewhere in, uh, that would be 80, 87 BC. Others say 91 BC, like Golam Reza Farhad Asar. I think, I think he was still around at that point. And actually, just seeing the outbreak of the Mithridatic War, it, it really must have uh, been perceived by the ordinary man at that time that Parthia was on the ascendant here and the Romans were actually declining. Uh, and this is without having the luxury of hindsight, knowing what happened afterwards. Now, this Mithridatic War is actually not against the Parthian Empire, right? It's against Mm -hmm. another Mithridates. Uh, It's a Mithridates of Pontus. Exactly, exactly. And and here is why this war actually broke up, because we have this conflict in the kingdom of Bithynia, another one of those lesser Hellenistic uh, kingdoms. Uh, which had filled in the void after the collapse of uh, the first successors uh, during the wars of the Diadochoi. So uh, the kingdom of Pontus wasn't traditionally seen as a successor kingdom. In fact, it had, ironically, uh, Persian origins. The the, uh, kings of Pontus were actually claimants to the Achaemenid throne. They actually claimed descent from Darius the Great, uh, so Mithridates, who would inevitably have been seen as an Oriental uh, in normal circumstances, was in this case seen as a champion for the Greek cause, for the Hellenistic cause. And this is also why the uh, Greek uh, states, in, in not only in Greece proper, but also in, in Thrace and in Asia Minor, actually put their lot with him. And this this saw... Uh, 
the great expansion of the Pontic Empire as an empire that stretched from Asia Minor to Greece itself. And this had the Romans absolutely alarming because they did not forget their past encounter with Pyrrhus of Epirus, uh, this uh, other uh, successor kingdom who had actually fought the Romans and fought them quite brilliantly. But as you, as you might know, his, his name... Of the Pyrrhic victory fame, yes, right? Yes, precisely. I mean, he was the kind of guy who would win really hard-fought victories, but the kind of victories that would completely undo him if he was going to repeat this act again. You know, so uh, This is also a testament to the Roman tenacity in war, that you can't defeat them just with one battle like that. They... They're, they're just not ground down. The Romans always had a superb ability to recuperate from their losses. Uh, and this, this likely stemmed from uh, their, their political management of the alliances that they had uh, throughout the Italian peninsula. So they would always have a, uh, a pool of manpower to draw from in, in, terms of, uh, in, in times of emergency and the like. So Mithridates... As brilliant as he was, soon he was going to get the attention of the Romans who would actually uh, push him back to Asia Minor, essentially. So this is also probably a good time to uh, highlight the importance of Armenia in this role, because one cannot mention the kingdom of Pontus without mentioning Armenia at the same time. And one has to understand that Armenia was initially, during this time, Tigranes the Great is normally the name that comes up uh, whenever the Armenian Empire is brought up. Uh, one has to remember that Tigranes the Great, as he is often called, uh, was actually a Parthian client initially. He was actually uh, fostered and cradled to power by Mithradates II of Parthia. And this was part of a wider bargain Mithridates II was actually all about building those necessary political alliances uh, as opposed to annexing them outright. And I think this proved to be a masterstroke during this entire time because as opposed to uh, simply taking over and having acquisitions on territory, instead people would be left to rule their own territory and just either pay taxes or support troops in times of war and the like. It was simply from uh, the perspective of, of political management, the easier route to take. Of course, we see a change in this later on in history when, uh, when client kingdoms become annexed as imperial provinces and the like. Uh, but the importance of Armenia in the wider Iranian military doctrine, and this is something that, uh, that repeats throughout history, not just here in this era, but future episodes and and actually for centuries onwards the importance of armenia simply could not be underestimated this region is like a natural fortress and it's also a key territory to the post achaemenid kingdoms further west not just like the ones that you see in, in pontus but also like the one in cappadocia which at this point in history previously had been uh, uh, turned into a client kingdom by the Romans. Now, this was particularly important for the Parthians to have uh, the, that launching pad of Armenia because they had the uh, claim of ruling the East 
partly because the monarchs claimed themselves to be king of kings. Uh, so there was a very set idea on what the East was. So the East, in, uh, in return, was simply all the lands up until Egypt and up until uh, the Bosphorus, essentially. So I think that is pretty important to have in, uh, in account what the royal ideology was, what, what was the rule of the East. And during this time, um, after the death of the great Mithridates II of Parthia, mm. um, it, it seems like the Parthian Empire has kind of lost some of its luster, right? And that's why all these client kingdom like Armenia is starting to uh, become powerful on its own, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you see, again, this comes to the fundamental differences between the two uh, political models, between the Romans and the Parthians. And that is that in Rome, if you have someone who's a brilliant and energetic uh, influence, overall, it, it accumulates to a pot, which is then shared. You know, and the same goes uh, with defeat as well. It's all about the uh, distribution of power. Whereas in Parthia, if you had a brilliant monarch, you get brilliant gains. If you have a weaker monarch and things are not going so good for you, well, then things actually hit the shitter, just to put it really mildly. And this is what actually happened after uh, a particularly strong monarch meets his demise. What, in, what inevitably happens is that you start to either get a, a weak successor or you get, predictably, a civil war situation coming up between two claimants. And this is precisely what happened uh, during the uh, late 80s, throughout the 80s, between Gotarzas and Orodas I. So, in other words... The Parthian system requires an energetic and efficient monarch to thrive and grow, period. So what we're seeing during this entire time is not just the breakdown of this Hellenistic East Mediterranean region, but we're also seeing these, these smaller kingdoms of Pontus and Armenia, not just picking up the pace, but they're also filling in the bigger voids in the region. And Eventually, as you see Pontus expanding into Asia Minor at Roman expense, you see Tigranes building up an empire from the Caspian Sea um, to the coastal Syria at Parthian expense. Uh, so we can sort of see a mirroring uh, development here where we see the two smaller forces take a little bit of a bigger space, but they're essentially wearing pants that they don't properly fill out eventually. So the Romans, they naturally, they mount a, a response. They recuperated much, much quicker from the disastrous times that they had previously, those civil wars and the like. And they are led brilliantly, first by Sola, as he uh, brings the first Mithridatic war to a conclusion, but particularly during the third Mithridatic War, I'm not going to go through the details of the second Mithridatic War because it actually bought uh, Mithridates VI his, his 
the necessary time he needed to hedge his own power. But the third Mithridatic war was actually the great uh, tipping point, essentially. And uh, it actually cemented the demise of his kingdom. And we see... So the whole Mithridatic war is basically the Roman attempt to conquer uh, the Hellenistic yeast uh, in in Asia Minor, right? Yeah, I think uh, initially they were aiming to restore the balance of powers that were there. Uh, we have to remember that uh, the defeated nations, so to speak, were not annexed. They were just turned into client kingdoms. Uh, so what the Romans were actually doing, these were not wars where they were doing territorial acquisitions, their own empire, but rather they were trying to restore the, the previous order that reigned there, the previous order that had been so beneficent to them. After all, this region was full of riches. It was a great source of revenue for the Romans. And I think uh, by looking at it that way, we can finally see why the Romans were victorious, for instance, at the... Battle of Tigranocerta in 69 BC, at Artashata in 68 BC, and uh, the river Lycus in Ionia in 66 BC. These were brilliantly led campaigns by both Pompey and by Lucullus. Uh, and they had something of a little rivalry going on there, which proved synergistic, which proved beneficial for the Romans in the long term. But they one was trying to upstage the other in terms of military triumphs and the like. So it is also here that we see the swan song of the kingdoms of uh, Pontus and the Armenians, but it, it didn't just go down like that. They were actually trying to uh, appeal to help from the Parthians, but for the Parthians, their entire encounter with the Armenians had been bitter. Uh, because Tigranes had actually turned on his previous uh, Parthian allies to enlarge his own kingdom. Atropatene was, for instance, lost to the Armenians, and parts of Upper Mesopotamia, which had belonged to the uh, Parthian uh, network of alliances, uh, that also had, had gone over to the Armenians. So... What we're seeing here is that the Parthians are just not that interested in helping out the uh, Armenians nor the Pont Pontids. Uh, in fact, they are trying to uh, bask in on their demise and actually regain the territories that were lost to Tigris and eventually install their own pretender to the throne of Armenia. So they were actually trying to mirror what the Romans were doing, trying to restore the old balance of power in the region. Now, the difference is the Romans did it successfully. This doesn't go all that well for the Parthians. So, back to the uh, first Rome-Parthian uh, meeting in 92 BC, because this kind of becomes important, uh, because it also offers both powers and an, an outlook towards one and the other. Uh, and I think it is here that we have to sort of admit defeat and say we don't really know what this meeting was, was all about, but it was brokered by the king of Cappadocia, Ariobarzanus I. Uh, and somewhere in this meeting, the representative of the Romans, Sulla, had 
behaved either impolitely or something of the like. There was a seat that had been taken, and Orobazos, which was which was the Parthian representative uh, during that meeting, had reported back to Mithradates, and subsequently he had been put to death uh, for this slight. We don't really know if this was true. Um, or of the like, but that was anyway the first meeting. And even though we don't know what the meeting was was about, we can sort of safely assume that it was an opportunity for both powers to uh, size each other up and see what one was up to. And, and like, and I I think it was in the interest of both because the Romans were very protective over Syria, and Parthia at that time was really protective over Armenia. So they took this opportunity to size each other up and sort of have this cautious, polite uh, meeting and, and see where they had each other and see if, if uh, there was some kind of mutuality going on there. Of course, as we know later on in history, nothing came about this. Uh, anyway, what happened later on is that Pontus and Armenia get get completely swayed over to the Roman cause. Uh, and the Parthians attempt to install their own pretender to the uh, Armenian throne, which is, I think, uh, a nephew, also called Tigranes, a nephew of Tigranes the Great. And even though the Romans sort of acquiesce to this, they, they sort of have, uh, what's it to us, basically? They have this attitude about them. But somewhere along the line, uh, after there had been a meeting between uh, Phratas III, this was the king of the Parthians at that time, uh, and Pompey, they had this understanding that, okay, you, you keep to this place and you, you keep to my turf here and, and so forth. But somewhere along the line, I think the Romans sort of, saw things for what they were and understood that the Parthians were parlaying from a position of weakness and uh, began to actually break this understanding. I'm, I'm not really sure if we can call this a treaty, if this was truly a treaty that was brokered. The records are a little bit scanty about it, but uh, sure, they broke the treaty anyway. And uh, what actually happened is that the, uh, the Romans had actually chased off the Parthians from two fronts, one from Armenia uh, by Lucius Afranius, the legate of Pompey, and one from Aulus Gabinius, the uh, legate in Syria. And they had chased them back all the way to Adiabene, which is in today's uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, uh, around Arbil. So they had been doing this without any sort of military retaliation going on. This was an indignity right there. And this is one that the Parthians were not soon to forget. So I think just to really sum things up at this point in history, Rome is ascending while Parthia is stagnating. And this actually sets the stage for what is to come. Uh, 